Open up to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Martin Luther, the father of the Great Reformation, says music drives away the devil. We know that to the devil, music is distasteful and insufferable. My heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music, which has so often refreshed me and delivered me from dire plagues. William Law, pastor, author, says, Just as singing is a natural effect of joy in the heart, so it has also a natural power of rendering the heart joyful. There is nothing that so clears away for your prayers, nothing that so disperses dullness of heart, nothing that so purifies the soul from poor and little passions, nothing that so opens heaven. Or carries your heart so near it as these songs of praise. Last week, we started in on this little mini-series titled, Whatever Happened to Worship? And if you guys recognize that title, it's a play off of A.W. Tozer's famous, brilliant, short little work of the same name, talking about worship. And sort of the big idea that we've been trying to tackle both last week and what we're going to be tackling today is that we were made to worship. As human beings, that is in your default DNAs. You are made to worship God. You are made to worship God. So God desires active participants in worship, not simply passive consumers. And that's been the big idea, what we're getting at, that God made man in his own image so we might appreciate, we might adore him, we might admire him, we might worship God. God made us to worship him. And as we survey scripture, we see that worship is, uh, in scripture, a little interesting. It's a peculiar thing. It's, it's a bit otherworldly. It's sacrificial. It's communal. It's beautiful. It's mystical. It's transcendent. And we see it's our default setting as humans created in the image of God. Because we were made to worship, Tozer, in that same book, says worship is the normal employment of moral beings. It's not something that we stick on or add into our week, but it is something that is so at the center of who we are. And because it's at the center of who we are, we are prone to worship. And what that means is we, without God in our focus, we are prone to worship something or somebody else. Like as in your default settings, in your default wirings as human, is the natural inclination to put something in front of you and worship that something. Now, in the creation story, we see that something was supposed to be God himself. And very quickly, as humans messed up the story and sin entered that world, we took that God-given, God-ordained natural inclination to worship and started directing it at different things or other people. And so a lot of how the scripture talks about worship is not commanding that we worship or telling us that we worship, but simply redirecting our attention and our affections back to God from something else. You think about the story of of the Israelite people throughout most of the Old Testament and the overarching meta-narrative of the Old Testament is that God created for himself a people meant to be a priest to the nations, and it's this constant battle and back and forth of them worshiping Yahweh versus worshiping something or someone else. 
And what we see is this kind of up and down roller coaster of them proclaiming Yahweh as the only true God and God blessing them in battle and providing for them and giving them land and then turning their attention and affection to idols or other nations, gods, or something of the like. And we find ourselves today kind of in a similar journey as the Old Testament Israelites. In a constant, there is a constant battle for your attention and your affection. And as much as we would like to say, if you are a Christian, we worship God only, we know if we look back on our last pack week, that is not the easiest default thing to do. It's actually easier to worship something or someone else. Your, your career, your family, like money itself, comfort the city you live in, some hobby that is interesting to you, is easy to put those things in front of God. And maybe not with our words we would say this, but with our lives we're worshiping something else. And last week we really kind of harped in on this idea of like entertainment-centric worship, that our time and our place and our culture has so informed how we approach God that we approach him through the lens of entertainment, meaning I come to a thing, I consume that thing, and I leave. And so the entire worship experience is then about you and your preferences and your agenda, and we get all the feeling and all the thrills of the experience without actually being involved or engaged. And what we found out last week is that actually runs counter to the story we see in Scripture, where continually worship is meant to be something that is sacrificial, not consumeristic. Worship is something that that causes you to give of yourself, not only to receive for yourself. But it's it's also a, a bit of a give and take. Like in worship, we are here readying to receive from God himself. But we also come ready to give to others and give to him. The believer, the Christian is called to live sacrificially, offering back to God everything that is theirs, enjoying the gifts that God has given us, yes, absolutely, but also with an open-handed posture, ready to give back to him or someone else, using them as an opportunity to worship the creator of all good gifts. And so we said sacrificial worship is an act of rebellion against our culture, an act of rebellion against this this me-centric time and place that you and I live in. It's actually something we can do to rebel against the natural ways of the world to say, you know what, I'm not the center of my universe, but God is the center of my universe. And in our time and place, that is an act of cultural rebellion, refusing the common way of our time and place and choosing to live differently. And today what I want to do is explore how our sacrificial worship is not only rebellion, but it is warfare. Like our sacrificial worship is spiritual warfare. And for that, I want to look at a story in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, flip all the way over to the left to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. It's in that part of the Bible that you and I skip a lot uh, because there's confusing names and stories and we don't really get the meaning, but there is beauty here in this chapter that I want to look at. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, there's a king of, of Judah, Jehoshaphat, And he was a good king, the book of Chronicles tells us. Just a few chapters earlier in chapter 17, we see he's a good king who acted courageously in his faith for Yahweh. And it was a time of provision and blessing and abundance for the nation of Israel because its leaders sought God and worshipped God and obeyed God. And what is happening in those early years of Jehoshaphat's reign is that no other kingdom or nation could rise up against them. God was protecting them. 
And so they were immune from the attacks of their enemies. Like, just think of the, the tribal warfare of thousands of years ago in the Middle East, and they were protected. They were this outpost for God's people. But in chapter 20, something happens, something changes. And so flip there with me, and this, we're going to read some of this story. And in chapter 20, verse 1, after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Okay, so something has shifted in the narrative. In the, in the few chapters before, you can read it on your own time if you want. In those few chapters before, we'd seen that God had actually protected them from battles and insurgents. And we see in chapter 20 that nations around Israel rose up against them. And how did Jehoshaphat respond. Go to verse 3 real quick. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So his first reaction to this incoming enemy battle that is happening, all these nations that have rose up against Judah His response as king is to fall on his face, seek the Lord, and lead his nation in doing so. And he begins in his his outcrying for God in verse 5 by ascribing power to him. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. Recognizing the power and the glory of God and recognizing how he has provided and protected them in the past. And we see verse 7, he recalls an example of this. And then we skip down, he recalls that God pe- has God's people had built a sanctuary for him. He describes the plight that they're in in verse 10 and 11. and verse 12, he pleads for help from God, right? He's asking God for help. And in his response to Jehoshaphat's prayer, God sends his spirit on a prophet, okay? So we pick up in verse 13. Meanwhile, all Jews, so it's kind of like a meanwhile back at the ranch, right? We get lost in Jehoshaphat's like prayer and petition and asking what is going on? God, will you help us? Meanwhile, all Judah stood there before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jahazel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, and Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, that's a familiar name if you've read through the Psalms before, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. All right, you have to be a designated prophet with the spirit on you to say something like that. So he says, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Okay, so the prophet comes in and reveals God is on about something with this battle. This is not your everyday nation fighting. God is trying to do something here. Verse 16, tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Interesting. Stand firm. 
Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. This is the the proclamation from the prophet that God is trying to do something. You are going to go into this battle, but you're going to go out in a certain way. And Jehoshaphat's response, the king's response to this word of promise from the Lord through his prophet is to fall on his face again on the ground and worship him. In verse 18, then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Then something different happens. Well, everyone is bowed. I mean, think of the picture. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people all bowed down, worshiping the Lord, praying on behalf of their country and their nation. Look what happens in verse 19. A group of people stand up. And the Levites, who are the Levites? Priests. Yeah, the people who are responsible for the worship of God in the Israelite nations. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. These guys are like the choir of Israel. They're, respo- they're the worship leaders of Israel, responsible for the praise and the worship. And they're a group, ever, ever since the time of King David, who were appointed to do the, the ministry of song, the ministry of worship, the ministry of praise in Israel. So they stood up while everyone else was bowing before God and praying, and they led the people and helped the people praise the Lord for his promised victory. Verse 20, And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. Okay, and I want you to notice what happens in verse 21 here. Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel, appoints his frontline troops. But the frontline troops, the people at the very beginning of this uh, ensuing battle that is about to happen, are not people on chariots, they're not people with swords or horses, they are singers. Jehoshaphat aims to conquer with a choir. Look at verse 21. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. It's a common reframe in the book of Songs. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Sir, who had come against Judah so that they were rooted. What's happening right here? The battle is not going the way all those other nations thought it was going to go. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. Right, So they start turning inwards on each other and battling each other. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, these three nations that had come against them. And behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. 
When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. And there were three days in taking spoil. It was so much. All these nations that had come against this nation turn inward on themselves, destroy each other. And when it's all over, the defeat is so great that it takes three days for the nation of Judah to go in and take their spoil. This is not such an uncommon story in in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 30, we see this intimate picture between the might and the wrath of God against the enemies of Israel with their worship. And there's this line in Isaiah chapter 30 that says, that the very stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be the sound, will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. You guys remember the story of Jericho, one of the most familiar Old Testament stories where God sends his people to go take the land. And instead of sending out the army, the archers, the swordsmen, the horsemen, whatever, They're to walk around the city singing and making noise and worshiping God. Throughout the story of God, God uses the prayers and worship of his people to defeat his enemies. And we see that worship in scripture is warfare. That God takes the praise and worship of his people and does something with it. It is not just a feel-good, warm, fuzzy moment for you and I. It is doing battle with the enemy. In 2 Chronicles 20, is this beautiful and poignant moment showing us that our spiritual life and our physical life are not so detached. That what we do here in this physical life has spiritual impact. Worshiping Jesus means setting him as king, thus recognizing that no one and nothing else can be king in your life. That's worshiping him. And we're not worshiping anyone or anything else. And the reality is, Satan does not want that. The enemy does not want that. He wants us to think that some, somehow our worship doesn't do anything except to make you feel good for 10 minutes before and 15 minutes after the sermon. And that's, that's it. That's all worship does. It's just give you the warm fuzzies for a few because Zach hit that bridge you really like. Like he wants you to believe that's as effective your worship gets. He doesn't want you to believe your worship is powerful in the spiritual realm. Our worship, when we lay ourselves to the side, lift up Jesus, is doing battle, not only with the prevailing culture that says you're the center of the universe, but with the spiritual enemy, Satan and his demons, doing battle against what Paul calls the schemes of the enemy. And Paul reminds us in his letter to the Ephesians that our battle is not just flesh and blood, but it's in the spiritual realm. Look at verse 11 and 12 of Ephesians chapter 6. Right? This is when Paul talks about putting on the armor of God. and We're not going to read that, but look what he says before he gets that. Put on the whole armor of God that you may able to, be, to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay. So what we learned from those couple of verses is that there is a spiritual battle that you and I cannot see, hear, touch, feel, smell, and that you play a part in that battle. That what you do in this life has spiritual impact. 
not only on yourself. I think we've done such a disservice in the westernized church over the last 50 or 60 years, thinking that Christianity is just you and God, my personal relationship with Jesus, right? That is an awful interpretation of faith in Scripture. That together we participate in the story of God that has been going on before you were born and will be going on after you die. That you are gifted, you are equipped not only to serve God and contribute to the body, but to do warfare in the spiritual realm. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Right? We're not walking around carrying in downtown Ventura. We're walking around praying for the city of Ventura. We're not walking around with knives or archery or anything like that. We are walking around singing over this city, and that is our warfare for this city. Your worship is not only a rebellion against the pulls of the world, but warfare against the schemes of the enemy. C.S. Lewis, a really famous author who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, he also wrote a bunch of other books. And, and one of my favorite, I just got finished reading this, rereading it again for like the fifth time a couple weeks ago, is called The Screwtape Letters. And uh, just a little bit of background because this quote doesn't make sense unless you've read The Screwtape Letters. But The Screwtape Letters is, is C.S. Lewis describing the relationship from one demon to another demon. All right, so C.S. Lewis writes in, in big-time allegory. He likes to paint word pictures and help us imagine things our minds not, might not normally be able to imagine. And what he does in this book is it's kind of a, a mentor-mentee relationship. And so there's the, the senior demon, Screwtape, and he's writing to his nephew, which is like this young, up-and-coming college student demon. And uh, he's writing all these words of advice and correcting him, and, and it is a, a fascinating book. And, and, and a part of that book... The mentor demon, Screwtape, is writing to this young apprentice, Wormwood, and he says this, Music and silence, how I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father entered hell, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces. But all has been occupied by noise. Noise, the, ground, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is excellent, ruthless, and virile. Noise, which alone defends us from the silly qualms, disparaging scruples, and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We have already made great strides in this direction as regards to earth. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end, but I admit we are not yet loud enough or anything like it. Satan hates the songs of God's people. He hates it when you worship Jesus and not yourself. When you worship Jesus and not someone or something else. He does his best to keep a church from being a singing church, and he does his best to keep you from being a singing person. The enemy wants you to believe your worship is not powerful, that it doesn't have a meaning or transcendence or effect on the spiritual battle. 
when we come here, we're not just doing church, going through the motions, participating in religious acts. We are singing a new reality over this city. We're singing God's victory over the city, proclaiming his kingdom over this city. When you sing these songs that Zach and the team lead us through, you are putting the world in its right order. You're proclaiming the real reality that Jesus is king and he has power and he has victory. When you're singing these songs, we are doing our part in participating in heaven meeting earth, ushering in the kingdom of God. When humans give honor to God and praise him and thank him and and say you are above all, that is spiritual warfare. That is spiritual warfare. When you guys think of spiritual warfare, probably if you're anything like me, you're like, the extent to spiritual warfare is like exorcisms or something like that. It just freaks you out and skeeves you out a whole lot. What we see in the Bible is that worship is warfare. When you proclaim Jesus is king and you are not, that is spiritual warfare. That is the opposite message the enemy and the world wants you to hear. And normally it's the opposite message our own hearts want to hear that you are not the center of the universe. When you worship and sing, the, uh, one of my favorite authors, Mark Sayers, he says it's literally like the air, the air Force providing air support in a ground war of the spiritual realm. And the enemy wants you to believe your worship doesn't matter and isn't powerful, and so we can cross our arms and sing here and just choose to not be into it that day. And I don't, I don't want to sound too harsh, but in those moments, you are letting the enemy win. When you come in and say, oh, I'm not really awake yet. I haven't had my fourth cup of coffee, so I'll sing, I'll sing after that. What we see throughout Scripture is praise and worship no matter the circumstance. And it does something in the spiritual realm. Proclaiming Jesus' victory helps usher in his victory. What we do and what Adam and Eve failed to do, we're meant to do and they failed to do, and what Jesus has enabled us to do because he has saved us from the domain of darkness and brought him into his kingdom of light. He has filled you with his Holy Spirit so you can want and desire the things of God, so you can worship no matter the circumstance, so you can give praise and thanksgiving even when everything in your life is falling apart. That thing that we can do because Jesus has enabled us to do trickles its way into every part of our life. Right? It's not just an hour and a half on Sunday or maybe with your community group during the week. It is so much more than that. It has tentacles into every part of your life. Worshiping Jesus is not just about singing. That was the first myth we dispelled last week. It actually has impact in every part of your life. True worship ought to be so personally and hopelessly in love with God that the idea of transferring that affection to anyone or anything else would seem crazy to us. Like if you are so wrapped up in who Jesus is and his glory, what we are meant to do, it seems crazy town that we would worship anyone or anything else. Paul is so concerned with worship and our understanding of worship that he tells the Romans in that text I read earlier, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable 
to God. That, that verse is really crucial for us to understand as we think about sacrificial worship as spiritual warfare. Because we can so often compartmentalize worship into just a one or two different categories. But there's one word I want you to focus in on right here. It's this word bodies. And uh, in its original like Greek that Paul was writing in, it's this word soma. And it means the whole of your body. Or another way of, of thinking about that word soma is everything about you. Right? So as Paul was writing, and he would use the illustrations of the body, he not only meant physical body, but that was also sort of a catch-all for like everything about you. Right? So Paul is saying in Romans 12:1, present everything about you as a living sacrifice. The whole of yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual what? Worship. Absolutely. As one writer put it, you cannot worship the Lord in the midst of your responsibilities on Monday. It is not likely that you are actually worshiping him on Sunday. Paul and the New Testament writers are so concerned with how we worship Often they talk about the practical outworkings of that worship, that it affects how you spend your money, how you lead your family, what kind of jobs that you take or don't take, your career path advancement, how you treat people who are different than you, how you treat the poor, the sojourner, the oppressed, the marginalized in society, how you worship Jesus affects every part of you. And to reverse engineer that, if it's not touching every part of you, are you actually worshiping Jesus? See, to the writers in the New Testament, it seems wholly inconceivable that you could worship Jesus and neglect the poor and the oppressed. That you could worship Jesus and not align your entire family life to worship him. That you would worship him and still hoard all your time or all your money or all your resources for you. It just seems incompatible. And there are a couple primary ways that the New Testament talks about how our worship influences our life. And the first is in your family. Like in, in the people that God has put you right in the middle of. If you are parents and you have kids, if you are kids and you have parents, uncles, aunts, grandparents, those who are related to you, God has put in front of you. Like you guys have heard the phrase, you can choose your friends, you can't choose your family. Yeah, you can't. God chose your family for you. For better or worse, God chose your family for you. And in our family, we can worship God with how we interact with our family. Parents, when you... When you are leading and, and guiding and disciplining your kids in a way that directs them back to God, that is worship to God. When you, when you honor your parents, even if they're wrong, say even when they're wrong, that's, that's worship. And it's doing spiritual warfare by rejecting the ways of the enemy and aligning our life with God. We are surrounded by brokenness and family. Some of you guys are part of a broken family, come from a broken family. And there is a way to lead, guide, and be a part of a family that is redemptive, that worships God. Paul has a lot to say about how we worship God when we work, when we do things with our hands, when we actually get to our Monday through Saturday thing. And in the book of Colossians, the book we kind of dove into over the course of the summer, Paul writes, whatever you do, which is just such a beautiful catch-all phrase. Like, there's no wiggle room out of this, you know? Like, as if to, as if to know, Paul would, would know we're little legalists sitting here trying to find our way out of what he has to say. Whatever you do, 
Work hardly for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Right? When you work and you're working well and you're working in a way that honors God, you're worshiping him. Right? When you head into your job and there's rampant opportunity to cheat, to lie, to get ahead by pushing someone else down, and when you choose to reject those things, and be humble, and to be loving, and kind, and caring, and live the way of Jesus in your workplace, that is worship to God. He loves that. It's worship, and it's doing spiritual warfare by rejecting the ways of the enemy that says, it's okay to lie this one time. Right? God, God allowed this for you to happen. Just go ahead and step into it. It's okay for you to cheat your boss this one time. It's rejecting those things, and say, even if it hurts me, I'm going to work hardly as to the Lord. The New Testament writers have a lot to say about purity and holiness. You can worship God by living a pure and holy life. Paul writes to Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Another beautiful catch-all phrase. There's no part in your life that is exempt from this call to holiness. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Acting holy and pure in a city that worships unholiness and impurity as a virtue. Doing whatever makes you feel good. According to your own warped moral compass. Rejecting that and saying, I'm going to hold this above my own personal preferences, desires, passions of the moment is worship to God. Is probably one of the harder ways you and I worship God. Man, especially if I can just talk to you people who are single in this room, like, it is brutal for you right now. Like, I am so glad I'm not trying to date somebody in 2018. I was talking to someone, a prospect the other day, who was telling me, like, the, they feel like the only way to meet someone is to open up Tinder and start, like, swiping and hope something meaningful comes out of that. And I was like, I like, I wanted to start crying. It's this girl, this like beautiful single gal who like loves Jesus and really like desires to be married and is trying to pursue this life with holiness. And I was like, that breaks my heart that like this is the way you meet somebody nowadays or that you have to like show up at a bar really late at night just to meet someone who's single because all the people with kids are already in bed by that time. But like, it's, it's sad. It's like, it's horrifying but you can worship God and how you pursue purity and holiness even in 2018 is hard because everything in our city around us is telling you otherwise. Everything in our culture around us is telling you otherwise. Everything around you is saying, oh, everybody looks at porn. That's okay. Everyone does it. Say, oh, you know what? Everyone like moves in with their girlfriend before they get married. It's, it's fine to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. It is awful. It's heartbreaking. 
but when we strive for lives of purity and holiness, not to achieve anything, but because we have been so loved and overwhelmed by Jesus, that that's not where we find our ultimate satisfaction. It's not find where our ultimate self-worth or comfort. We actually find it in Jesus himself that is worshiping God. This worshiping God, and it is a worship that God loves to receive. We can worship God in how you spend your time. So much of our time is already spoken for already with work, school, family obligations, that how we structure the free time that we do have says a lot about you. What we do with the time that is left is vital to our character. It reveals a whole lot of what you believe is most important in life. When the temptation is to waste our time in any number of ways, I don't think I have to spell that out for you. In any number of ways, the temptation to waste our time, what we do with our time reveals the kind of person we are. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time. Because what? The days are evil. Time is working against you. All time and space is working against you. And Paul says, make the best use of time. Don't be foolish. Understand the will of the Lord. And this phrase, making the, the most use of time, is, is this word uh, like that, that means to purchase or redeem something. Right? So like when you take a coupon to the store, you're redeeming that coupon. Like you're using it, you're taking advantage of it, you're benefiting from the fruit of that action. The Bible tells us to actively take advantage of the opportunity to do good, to make the most use of our time. And we can worship God by how we spend our time and structure our time. Paul says our time has missional impact when he says to the Colossians, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. And the writer of Hebrews says uh, how we structure our time impacts the family of God, right? When he encourages not to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but make the family a priority. Are we setting aside time to worship him in our lives, to enjoy him? Are we setting aside time to grow in our relationship with him and others in the church? Are we setting aside time to enjoy and build up our family? pour into deep friendships, spend time with those who are lost and far from God, showing them his hope and goodness. Busyness is not a badge of honor. I believe it is a badge of shame that we have tried to turn into a badge of honor. How are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy, man. You know, and in that saying, look at all the cool things that I'm doing. Look at how successful I'm being at my job. Look at all these extra things that I am a part of. I would love to, like, bump into one of you at Prospect and be like, Bert, how you doing? Good. What are you up to? Nothing. <laughs> that sounds awesome, you know? And not to, not to feel guilty for being lazy, but to just sit and enjoy time? Man, what a concept. It's crazy. Part of worshiping God will be saying no to things so you can say yes to the things he has for you. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, says God is always trying to give us something. He's always trying to give us good things, but our hands are too full to receive them. We're approaching our time through a lens of entertainment and self-centeredness and consumerism. We're saying it's all about what I want in this moment. It's all about what is pleasurable in this moment. 
We're approaching our time through the lens of biblical sacrificial worship. We're waking up in the morning saying, Lord, what do you have for me today? Help me to be interrupted well today. Help me to make time and space for those who are isolated or forgotten or unloved or unlovely. When you steward your time, when you are dedicating a day of the week to Sabbath, when you build in a healthy life rhythm of of rest and work and joy, that's worship. It's doing spiritual warfare by rejecting the lies of the enemy that says the busier you are, the more important you are. The busier you are, the more successful you are. And saying, no, that's not going to be my metric for success. And finally, we cannot talk about worshiping God with all of our lives without talking about money. How you handle your money, one author says, is a direct indicator, a direct matrix of how you honor God. What our hands do with our money shows us what our hearts are doing with God. Like another way to put it is what we do with our money shows us what we believe God is doing with us. What money is to us shows us what God is to us. Jesus talked more about money than just about anything else while he was on earth. I believe that's for a reason. That's not a coincidence, you know? That's not because God is poor and needs your help. It's because Jesus knows money does something to our heart. The abundance of it and the lack of it equally do something to our heart. All through scripture, there's this intimate correlation between the development of a person's character and how they handle their money. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12, take care and be on your guard, like literally crouched on your guard, like sword in hand waiting. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I feel like that is a verse our church needs to memorize. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. From Scripture is a call to live simply, not because you have to, because you get to. To choose to live on less so you can give away more. He says in Matthew 6, one of the most famous sermons of all time, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. For where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, what? There your heart is, also. What we do with our money shows us what we believe life and joy and love and hope and security and meaning and freedom come from. Does all those things come from the abundance of money? Or does it come from somewhere else? Jesus goes on to say that money is something that we can use to worship God. Like, it's not just like hate money and like live a life of poverty. That's not like, that's not the call from Scripture. The call from Scripture is to use whatever Jesus has graced you with for the benefit of his kingdom. And it's actually something that we can use to worship God. Look at just a few verses below in verse 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. So Jesus sees this as a binary situation, no gray area. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is saying that we can worship and serve God, or we can worship and serve money. If we serve and worship God, money then becomes a tool at our disposal to further his kingdom, to place our our trust and faithfulness in him in a demonstrable way, to enjoy the blessings of his provision, not your hard work and not your cunning and craftiness and wisdom, but to say, I'm going to trust you with everything I have. Honestly, that's why we... I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this, just like a behind-the-curtains look, but like we don't pass a plate here. I don't know if you guys have been to church that passes a bucket. or something. That's why we don't do that. We don't, we don't want, Paul says, to be a cheerful giver, not giving out of like compulsion. And so that's why worship is a part of our response. It's off to the side. It's one of the many ways we respond to God in worship. Not so you guys feel compelled or obligated to like, oh, I, should, I should tip Bert today and throw in a 20 or something like that. But like, no, it's, it's a response in worship. God has given us everything. Everything is his, the Psalms tell us. Everything, the, wor- the earth is the Lord's and everything therein. Everything is his and he's given us a small part of his creation to steward for a short amount of time. How will we use that? What we do with our money loudly affirms what kingdom we belong to, Randy Alcorn tells us. I want to tell you a story. It's a funny story. If you've been hanging around Anthem for a long time, you've probably heard this story. One of the all-time great preachers, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, always told this story when he was talking about money. And I want to share this with you. He's a famous preacher that died a little while ago, and he says this, a farmer who reported happily to his wife that their best cow had given birth to twin calves, one red and one white, he says, you know, I think we should dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. We'll bring them up together, and when the time comes, we'll sell one and keep the proceeds, and we'll sell the other and give the proceeds to the Lord's work. Right? Seems honorable. His wife asked him which one he was going to dedicate to the Lord's work. There's no need to bother with that now, the farmer said. We'll treat them both the same, and when the time comes, we'll do as I say. And off he went. And a few months later, the farmer came into the kitchen looking miserable and unhappy. When his wife asked him what was wrong, he sadly said, I have some bad news. The Lord's calf died. She said, wait, you had not decided which one was to be the Lord's calf. Oh, yes, he said. I had always decided it was to be the white one, and that's the one that died. The Lord's calf is dead. And then he comments after that story, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says it's always the Lord's calf that dies which is like funny and sad and ironic and depressing all at the same time. Because even in an antiquated story about farmers and cows, I think we're thinking of our own lives. Start out with like the best of intentions. And that bill comes and that bill comes and then, oh man, but we really want to go on that trip. And like, but they just invited us out for dinner. We got it. And it's just like the best of intentions go by the wayside. When we're approaching our money through the lens of entertainment. We're thinking like, what is going to make me happy? Because everything that is yours is yours to spend the way you want. Everything that is mine is mine to spend the way I want. I had a mentor in my life who says, show me your bank account and I will show you the things you care about. Oh, it's piercing, piercing. When we're approaching money through this heart of sacrificial worship, 
when we're giving generously, looking for opportunity to bless other people, faithfully supporting the church, other ministries, other mission around the world. When you give, when you tithe, when you give generously to others, when you build margin into your budget, that's all worship. That is in probably one of the most tangible ways saying, Jesus is king, I am not. It's probably one of the scariest things you and I could do. There's an old preacher who said the wallet is always the last part of the man who gets saved. It's like, oh, that's funny. It's so true. It's so true. Declaring with your wallet that Jesus is king and you are not, that the entire earth is the Lord's and everything in it and not yours. And for a short time, he gives us a small portion to steward. How we steward that is a spiritual act of worship. Every part of our life is worship. Our, our family, our friendships, our time, how we handle our purity and holiness, what we do at work, how we spend our money, how we save our money, how we give our money, how we interact with those who are lost and far from God. All of this, every part of your life is worship. We're always worshiping someone or something. And we were made to worship God. So God actively desires active participants in his family, not passive consumers. And if we're to go down that short list of family, work, purity, holiness, time, money, what does how we handle those things tell us about our worship? Like maybe you were doing this along the way, but maybe even just take a beat right now and think through those parts of your lives. How do, how I handle that stuff, how does that speak to my life of worship? What does that tell me about the things that I care most deeply about? And maybe if we're so bold, ask the question, with all of my life, who am I worshiping? The enemy has a few lies for you, that your worship isn't powerful, that your worship is just singing on a Sunday, that your worship doesn't include your entire life, and that God doesn't really care about any of that stuff anyway. The prophet Hosea tells us God doesn't desire the motions, the entertainment, Genesis 4, we see that God doesn't desire worship that always makes sense to us, but it's worship that makes sense to him. He wants us to offer up something that he is asking for. When you sing, and sing God's reality over the city, and when you see all of your life under the rule and reign of King Jesus and you align your life accordingly, that is spiritual warfare and it's worship. It is, the Bible tells us, really successful spiritual warfare. Like nothing can stand against you, spiritual warfare. Like victory belongs to Jesus, spiritual warfare. Like though we may not see it here and now that is making a difference in the spiritual realm. I don't know if that weirds you out. I don't know if that's like pumping you up or encouraging for you. I don't know if that's like bending your mind a little bit. But every choice we make here and now has profound impact in the spiritual realm. Not only with you and God, yes, absolutely. Not only with you and the community, yes, absolutely. But in the spiritual realm as well. 
that your prayer, your worship, your lifestyle is a powerful tool at your disposal. So what I wanted to do to kind of wrap up this little two weeks is head over to Ephesians chapter 2. So many of the Psalms invite us to praise him, to come into his presence with thanksgiving, to come into his holy place with thanksgiving and worship. So many of the songs train our hearts to recognize that Jesus is king over everything, that the Lord rules over everything. And Paul says to the church in Philippi that eventually every person will bend a knee and bow to the name of Jesus. And what I wanted to do to end our time in Ephesians chapter 2 is just remind us why and how we worship. Like that we can worship because he has rescued us. So we're going to respond and worship. And as I read Ephesians 2 over you, I'd love for you guys to stand. And uh, even as a, to help put our hearts in the right posture, we're going to put our body in a posture of receiving. So uh, if you feel comfortable, just put your hands out right in front of you. Um, and that just simply puts your body and your heart in a posture to receive. When Paul writes to the Ephesus, he says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But... God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And he goes on to say at the end, For through Jesus we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit.